Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we're going to be talking to Ken Jennings, who you probably know as one of the hosts of Jeopardy. All he had to do to get the job was win the show 74 times in a row. Easy peasy. Ken is also a writer. His latest book is called 100 Places to See After You Die, a travel guide to the afterlife. Then speaking of writers, we're also going to talk to the writer Erica Berry about wolves, both the ones that live in nature and the ones that live in our minds. Then we're going to wrap things up with music from the incredible international rock and roll band Making Movies. This person is going to really enjoy this week's episode of Livewire. Who is you? Okay, that uh, needed some work. Uh, Stick around anyway, okay? Livewire gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This episode of LiveWire was originally recorded in July of 2023. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get to the show. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going great. I am pretty excited to play this round of Sly with you this week. I feel like you're going to nail this one. Are you ready mm. for a little station location identification examination? I think so. All right. This is where I quiz Elena about somewhere in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's got to guess where I am talking about. Okay. So Johnny Cash wrote a song about the loggers from this town in 1960. The song is called Lumberjack. Tall Timber. Right, Tall Timber. Hmm. That kind of narrows it down to a, a quadrant of the country, yeah, I think. definitely not in Nevada. For Well, it could be in Nevada. It could be over by Reno and Lake Tahoe. We can rule like Nevada that. out. Okay. Uh, I wonder if it's in our neck of the woods in the Pacific Northwest. Just might be. How about this? The highest point in this town is Mount Nebo, which is actually a 1,200-foot hill. It was known for its band of feral Angora goats <laughs> that were living there. And apparently residents of this place said they could predict the weather by watching where the goats were on the mountain. I have no idea what this place is, but I am on my way once you tell me the name of this town. <laughs> it's Roseburg, Oregon. Hey, not far from me. Fabulous. That's right, where we're on <laughs> KMPQ Radio, which is part of Oregon Public Broadcasting. So shout out to everyone and all of the Angora goats Woo. there in Roseburg. You ready to get on with the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. 
from PRX, it's... This week, author and Jeopardy host, Ken Jennings. For me, the best thing about hosting Jeopardy is just how much I love Jeopardy. It was always my favorite thing as a kid. And now I feel like the kid that won the chocolate factory. You know, I, right. I, I get to hang out there. All the other hosts got sucked up the chocolate pipe or whatever. And writer Erica Berry. Part of the book is recognizing that I have a different wolf in my head that's like a shadow wolf than, than you might have. And I'm kind of interested in that. With music from our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in from all over the country. To this week's Livewire, of course, we have asked the listeners a question uh, based on uh, Ken Jennings' book, 100 Places to See After You Die. We've asked the listeners to describe their ideal afterlife, and we're going to hear those responses coming up in a moment. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show. There's some good news happening out there in the world. We don't have a lot of time this week, Elena, so hit me with your best news. Oh, it's good. This one's fast because it takes place on a rapid speed bike ride in Toronto, Canada, where an artist and painting teacher named Dmitry Bondavenko was biking and he didn't even hear it when his prized five by seven Moleskine artist notebook fell out the back of his bag. And this is, he's had this thing for 10 years and he does his painting studies in it. So it's not, you know, my Moleskine is like, has like four sentences of a book and then like a grocery list. No, this is, this is this gorgeous book and he was pretty despondent, but he retraced his steps. He put up flyers. He called park services to no avail. As a last ditch effort, he put it on this Facebook site called Weird Toronto. <laughs> and that, that got shared among all the neighborhoods that he traveled to on his long bike commute. And it ended up on <laughs> a Facebook page called I Am a Leslie Villain, and it's the Leslieville neighborhood of Toronto, where a 75-year-old cyclist named Chris Ellum saw the post. And he had found this book on the trail, and the minute he opened it, he knew it was something extremely special. It had these gorgeous portraits and still lifes, uh, had just this amazing work inside of it. So instead of just like leaving it on like the closest park bench, he took it home with him. He felt very uncomfortable. But then he saw it on that Facebook page. But then they had no idea how they were going to get him back in touch with Dimitri. Series of Facebook hands across Canada things <laughs> happened. They managed to uh, broker a return. And uh, Chris Ellum asked for no reward. He was just so happy to be able to return it. But he did uh, exercise his right as an elder to scold Dimitri <laughs> for not putting his name, address, phone number, email address, uh, next of kin, in case of emergency contact, AirPod, you know, anything else you need for something that precious. QR code, just like all <laughs> of <right>. it. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, that's a great story. I love that he got that back. The best news I heard this week is coming out of Key West, Florida, where they held their annual Hemingway Days celebration. This is a big deal down there. Of course, Hemingway lived in Key West for uh, a lot of the 1930s, and he wrote a lot of his best work, some people think, while he was down there. And he used to hang out at a place called Sloppy Joe's Bar. 
And so oh, yeah. this festival kind of everybody shows up at Sloppy Joe's Bar. They do like a fake running of the bulls, which I believe was more in like Pamplona than it was in Key West. But yeah, it's Hemingway adjacent. Let's not get hung up in the details. <laughs> but it turns out that not unlike Santa Claus, if you're a guy of a certain age at a certain, <laughs> let's just say, body style, and you grow your beard out, you start mm-hmm. to look weirdly like Hemingway pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So they've got <laughs> yeah. this Hemingway lookalike contest, and a guy named Garrett Marshall, he's a retired TV broadcast engineer from Madison, Wisconsin. For the last 11 years, he's been entering the Hemingway lookalike contest in Key West. Oh, wow. And he has not won. And this year, <laughs> on his actual 68th birthday, he was declared the winner of the Hemingway lookalike contest. He's the Susan Lucci of Hemingway lookalike contest. I'm dating myself with that reference, right. but oh my God. Always nominated <laughs> for those like daytime Emmys, but never winning or something was her story. Well, yeah, like 30 years. He yeah. is a Lucci no more because he has now actually won. I don't know what changed if his beard got more Hemingway-esque, if his waistline did. I don't know what he did in year 11 that he wasn't doing in the previous <laughs> 10 years, but uh, he did manage to win on his birthday. So it's the best birthday he's ever had. This is like a big deal to this guy. He also says that he shares many characteristics with Ernest Hemingway. He also is a writer, and he's written nonfiction and also short fiction. He says he loves fishing. He loves all the stuff that Hemingway loved. The one difference he points out is that he has only been married once, whereas Hemingway was married four (laughs) times. Uh, He says, I only have one wife, but that doesn't matter because she's all I need according to Garrett Marshall. So congrats. There was 140 people entered the Hemingway lookalike contest. So this wasn't like a gimme. This wasn't just like a couple of of dudes with beards. This is like a serious thing that he won. So congratulations. Uh, A success down there at Hemingway Days. That's the best news that I heard this week. All right, let's get our first guest on over to the show this week. Now, he was living a quiet life in Salt Lake City as a software engineer in 2003 when he managed to get on a TV quiz show called Jeopardy. And 74 games and $2.5 million in winnings later, a uh, trivia legend was born. In fact, these days, he's actually one of the hosts of Jeopardy. And when he's not doing that, he's hosting his podcast, Omnibus, with John Roderick. And he also writes hit books, including his latest, 100 Places to See After You Die, a travel guide to the afterlife. Take a listen to our conversation with Ken Jennings, recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Are you at this point now getting used to this version of your life now as uh, one of the hosts of Jeopardy and as a person who is that much more recognizable? It's been a bit of a bump, actually, Uh, and hopefully the last one. I mean, the great thing about being a contestant on Jeopardy is you're cured of stage fright forever. Like nothing, (laughs) nothing else you ever do will be as terrifying as playing Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Sure, on TV, it seems very calm and pleasant, but like... Those contestants are terrified. They are civilians, and they don't know what's about to happen to them. Well, I mean, I, I want to talk about the book, but I think we have to also address a quirk of coincidence, which is our own Elena Passarello was a contestant on Jeopardy not yes. long ago while you were actually hosting. Do you remember anything? Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's... 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like you're going to be taking over the world of acting anytime soon, Ken. <laughs> Look, there's like two a night. They all have a story about their banjo playing or whatever. Sure. And it's 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 yeah. all a blur line, except for you, of right, course, right. who really stands out. But it was great, and you're not kidding. It was it was the most terrifying, strangest thing that I've ever done, or probably will ever do. In hindsight, is it a good memory? Did you have fun? I did. I had a really good time. You don't have to say that because I'm here. I know, I'm going to say something else, and then not just because you're here. Everybody felt better because you were there. There are like well, nice. 30 of us or something, it felt like, in the room, and tape several episodes at a time, and you all get to know each other over the course of the day because it's kind of a long day. We all felt at ease. And like In the breaks, you'd be like, I remember when that happened to me. <laughs> but in general, it was so lovely. Yeah, I don't think... My memory is Alex, uh, who is a, a lovely man, an amazing host. Yeah. Uh, he didn't really go out of his way to make the contestants feel like they were his friends and guests. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he had kind of a level of remove. A, a, I don't want to say disdain, but a, a, <laughs> a chilly kind of a... You know, he was he was a little more unapproachable. And I just remember how terrifying it is to hold that buzzer. And yeah. I will go out of my way to say, listen, I just want all of you to know I'm on your side. I want you to look good. I want you to have fun. I think that's going to be a better show. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I know it's very intense. And I hope that people do have fond memories. Because you're putting yourself out there. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's like internet dating, but worse. Because like 9 million yeah. elderly people are watching you. Right. <laughs> um, I, like, is it true, Ken, that this book... Uh, came to you when you misread a different book in (laughs) the airport? (laughs) I was in an airport bookseller, and I saw one of those many kind of uh, things to do before you die bestsellers. But I was on the other side of the table, and it was upside down, and I thought it said, 100 places to die before you see. And I thought, (laughs) that's actually, that's actually, I don't know what it is, but that's a book idea. And I sold the book based on the title. So up to that point, when you misread that thing in the Hudson bookseller or whatever, (laughs) did you have any sort of interest in the afterlife as far as like, you know, the various different ways the afterlife is kind of speculated on and religiously and in pop culture and stuff? Was this something that was a big topic in your brain anyway? When you write a book, you always reverse engineer an origin story. And when I think back to my childhood, it was very much about how much of the universe I learned about through pop culture. Like, the, uh, the first deaths I remember grappling with in my own life were not neighbors or grandparents. It was like Mr. Spock or, or Mr. Hooper from, from Sesame Street. Oh, wow. Or, um, that, that, I'm still a wreck from that one. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know about you guys. This is the um, first I'm hearing about that. <laughs> Sp- are, you on the, are you still on season eight? Yeah. <laughs> I was taping that. <laughs> it's on my DVR. Mr. Hooper dies? It's a drug shootout. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm wondering, um, because you grew up in the, in the LDS church, right? Yeah. And I grew up in a very evangelical kind of Christian environment. And I know in my life... Uh, I was extremely afraid of hell as a young kid. It, it, it loomed very large in my life. I'm wondering for you, like as a kid growing up in that in that religion, were you afraid of going to hell? Did you assume you were going to heaven? Like how much did you think about it as a kid? You know, I went to a, a very Protestant high school because my family moved overseas. And I, I'm kind of familiar with the kind of the evangelical treatment of hell and as a as a motivator, shall we say? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a lake of fire. You don't want that, Luke. No, no. <laughs> and, uh, but that's not so at home in my own Mormon tradition, which is a much cozier kind of a, you're going to be with your family. It's going to be great. It w- so maybe there's some of that. Is, is, in addition to my Gen X, like, 
you know, plumbing the great mysteries of life, you know, UFOs and Bermuda Triangle and what happens in the life to come, which was mm -hmm. a big part of my childhood. I think there was also my Sunday school lessons where the afterlife kind of sounded great. <laughs> Do they de-emphasize hell, or is it that you were such a good kid that you were not afraid? Because yeah, I, I was a very I, bad I was, kid. <laughs> My parents are actually here, and they will testify. You, you, I was, I mean, I was giving God a lot of material to send me <laughs> yeah, to got, the lake of fire. They gave me a different set of, of scriptures. Right. Uh, no, I think it was more that there's really no theological place for hell in, in Mormonism. Really? Yeah, Latter-day Saint theology, there's like multiple kingdoms you can go to, but they're all pretty good. Really? Like even the economy class one, it's, it's pretty good. Right. <laughs> it's better than here, for sure. Not, he not here at Portland. Portland's no, lovely. but nothing could be better. <laughs> but this world. Okay, we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Ken Jennings. His latest book is 100 Places to See After You Die. Stay with us. This is Livewire Radio. Back in a moment. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use Livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. We're coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater right here in Portland, Oregon, this week. And we are talking to Ken Jennings, uh, one of the hosts of Jeopardy, also the author of the new book, 100 Places to See After You Die, uh, A Travel Guide to the Afterlife. So you've kind of broken this book up into different, I guess, sections, uh, mythology, religion, books, movies, uh, and television, music, and theater—all uh, like the ways that these different art forms, art forms, kind of address the idea. I'm curious. In the mythology category, what is one of the more like out there mythologies around the afterlife? Uh, the Maori afterlife journey begins with a cliff dive. Ooh! Mm. You literally go to a cliff and you jump off into the ocean. So, like extreme sports, like from the get-go, uh, which sounds pretty great. Yeah. There's an ancient Chinese tradition about hell that uh, the worst thing that can happen to you is you can see what's going on back at home. Oh, man. And it's not what you want. Like, you're, uh, everybody's forgotten you. Your spouse is remarried. Your kids have a new stepdad. Uh, they're, they're misspending their inheritance. That's, that's the Chinese idea of really? hell. Yeah. 
in the, the part where you're talking about how books, certain books address the afterlife, you point out this thing that I hadn't really considered, which is like how hardcore C.S. Lewis is being by basically killing off all the kids in the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> I think you have, to be a, you have to be a pretty Narnia super fan to know this, but the last Narnia book ends with all of the Lucy and Edmund and all the rest, they all get to go to heaven and stay in Narnia forever because they've all just died in a train crash back on Earth. Oh, really? And this is just, it's like a one sentence thing. Aslan's like, hey, don't worry. You and all your families just died in a train crash. You get to stay in Narnia forever. And they're like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> Go look at the book. I'm, I'm not wrong about this. The, like, animated version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that was released probably in, like, the late 70s, early I 80s. I remember, yeah. Haunts my nightscapes to this day. <laughs> like, the, the White Witch and Mr. Tumnus and oh, yeah. just the actual rendering of them. Very, very traumatic. I have a very fond memory of staying up late to watch that on TV as a kid. And it got preempted for a Sonics game. <laughs> and I was furious. <laughs> I was furious. In hindsight, I should have just watched the game. Right. I, um, I also thought, boy, Turkish Delight must be just the absolute great. Right. And then I had some, and I was like, this is what all the <laughs> hype is about? <laughs> this is what you're selling your friends out for, dude? <laughs> Homeboy, the trade is siblings right? for the world's worst candy. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. It would be like, do you want some snow caps? Do you want Mike right. and Ike's? <laughs> hey, do you want some applets and cutlets? <laughs> some marzipan. That's what it is. It's basically that, right? It's basically applets and or cutlets. Um, you uh, you finally give the movie Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey its due in this book, as far as their and that's of course the sequel to a Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and you it's the sort of maybe less focused on, but they go through the afterlife. What do, what do you think is is interesting or ambitious about how that movie handles it? It's a great movie. Uh, do we remember Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey? Yeah. I feel like everybody remembers them beating death at Twister uh -huh, and, uh, and the Rock'em Sock'em Robots or whatever it is. Um, but the visions of heaven and hell are great. Hell is full of traumatic memories from your life. So you get punished by your most awkward, cringy, traumatic, painful memories from life. There's no new tortures at all. Right. And, and heaven is just an amazing kind of purple and green... Uh, you have to give some a bit of wisdom to, to get in. And I think Bill and Ted say, every rose has its thorn. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that gets them into heaven. Poison lyrics get you into heaven. Um, how was the research on this book? Because you've written a number of books and uh, you put together like puzzles and things that appear in various publications. Where was this on the list of like intense research projects for you? I just, for me, the research is the best part of writing a book. For one thing, it's not writing, which uh, authors love. Authors love not writing, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, but also, you get to sit in the library all day, which, you know, was very much bringing me back to my childhood. <laughs> and it's like, it's like recess. I'm in the library. <laughs> <laughs> I love it that we were both indoors during recess, but for very different reasons as kids. <laughs> Yours was voluntary. Mine was not. So there was a lot of just trying to find, you know, the old Buddhist sutras that describe the paradise the most vividly or have the weirdest details about Islamic hell or Jewish heaven or, or whatever it is. It was a lot of fun. So for you, writing a book uh, is not a come down from being one of the hosts of Jeopardy, where there's like a studio audience and millions of people are seeing you. And then writing a book is like hiding from your children, you know, going to the library, trying to get Wi-Fi at the Starbucks or something. Do you enjoy the process of writing a book uh, differently or less so, more so now that you have this other life as like a TV personality? I think I'm very much the second kind of person. Like I'm an indoor kid, you know, like the real me is me sitting in a library being like, 
oh boy, let me, let me see if I can find some more texts about the Inuit afterlife, you know? Um, and going on TV is, you know, I get that out of my system. You know, it's, it's nice to have an outlet for that. And, you know, it's, for me, the best thing about hosting Jeopardy is just how much I love Jeopardy. It was always my favorite thing as a kid. And now I, I, now I feel like the kid that won the chocolate factory. You know, I, right. I, I get to hang out there. All the, other, all the other hosts got sucked up the chocolate pipe or whatever. <laughs> And what is their afterlife like? <laughs> I mean, I was actually wondering about that because, like, you're somebody who liked the show Jeopardy, got on the show Jeopardy, set the record, and you're now the host. Do you ever wonder if you're dead and this is heaven? <laughs> I think it's clearly a simulation. Like, like my life is 100% evidence that we're living in a simulation. This, this could not happen. Uh, I feel very lucky. What are the, the parts of the job of, of hosting Jeopardy that were more challenging than you were expecting when you went from being somebody who had played it a lot to somebody who's actually trying to run the game? I was expecting it to be hard, and it was. Alex made it look easy, but it moves very fast, and it's a, it's a very intense process. You're trying to be a referee and a play-by-play -play announcer and a narrator all at the same time. Um, the thing that was surprised me with how hard it is, and I'm still not great at it, is final Jeopardy. Like you get a card that has the wagers and all the permutations on them, but it's full of numbers. It's like, here's what she has, here's what she'll have if she, here's what she wagered, here's what she'll have if she gets it right, here's what she'll have if she gets it wrong, here's what she had yesterday, here's the total if she becomes a four-day champion. You know, so you get, it's like a Sudoku. You're looking at this card, <laughs> and you've got to figure out how to create TV drama out of this thing, and it's for by far the hardest part of the show for me. So harder than doing the interviews with the <laughs> contestants, because now... That's the only hard on the audience, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Uh, I, it was, in fact, there's an a, a interview with you in The New Yorker that just came out uh, recently that, where they, they said, you've definitely made that much less awkward than it used to be. And I can attest as a viewer. <laughs> like, you seem to have a pretty good handle on that. Um, because it's a very challenging thing, right? You're trying to do, like, three 45-second interviews with people that are not on TV a lot and find a way to get out of each one. Yeah. I mean, Alex Trebek's thing seemed to be to just go... I'm not going to go there. Like, <laughs> or, when in doubt. Okay. Right? Go, it was always okay. just kind of like... Good, you know, good for you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, have you, are, do you find yourself starting to develop some of these same little, like, in case of emergency, break glass? Some, somebody told me that my good for you is, that's fantastic. Wow. You know, that's, that's the upbeat Mormon version of good for you, I guess. <laughs> I'm Jimmy Osmond, and that's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, what is the level of prep that you have for those interviews? Like, what do you know going in? Is somebody talking in your ear going like, get out, get out, <laughs> eject? No, there's hardly, I, the host does wear an earpiece, but it, it gets used like twice a show. It's, oh, wow. it's basically like uh, one more clue and then go to commercial. And that's about all we use it for. Um, the, uh, the thing about the contestant interviews is I remember having to do that. And it's a tough ask for these people who have, as you know, like have, just have eight minutes of TV experience in many cases. Yeah. And now it's like, hey, stop playing a trivia game and tell a funny story. Right. Like what is happening on this game show? Uh, <laughs> and so I remember that and I, have, I feel like I actually have rapport with them. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm genuinely interested in the stories. Right. You know, I, I want to know what happened. And, uh, and I think Al, the fun of Alex was he did not care to convey that he cared at all. <laughs> right. And, right. And that's kind of the beauty of his hosting. One of the things that I have to say I really loved about your run was no one had had to do 
that many guest interviews <laughs> as right. the guest in history. So you just started to get really loose, like in about the 40s. Like, because you were like out of stories, probably, right? I was out of stories on day three. Like, like who here has like six amazing anecdotes about their life they want to tell on national TV? It's, it's, it, I think it's very rare. And luckily, I realized quickly that nobody is fact checking these stories. <laughs> Like, it's, like I, didn't com- I didn't claim I had a purple heart or anything, but like, <laughs> like if, you t- if you tell Alex you were briefly a, a birthday clown in college, he's not going to go online and try to, <laughs> try to figure... So occasionally I would say something like, you know, Alex would be like, Ken, it says here you like airline food. What? And I'd be like, I know, Alex, it's nuts. <laughs> Just can't get enough of airline food. Uh, so a, no- a non-story will work if told with confidence. Ken Jennings, thank you so much. That was Ken Jennings right here on Livewire, his new book, 100 Places to See After You Die, A Travel Guide to the Afterlife, is available now and in perpetuity. Hey, special thanks this week to Carrie Timchuk of Beaverton, Oregon. Carrie is part of the Livewire member community and generously supports our show with a donation each month, and we are very thankful for that because it is how we are able to keep this whole thing going. So, a big thanks to Carrie for supporting Livewire. This is Livewire from PRX. Of course, each week on the show, we ask our listeners a question In honor of Ken Jennings' book about the afterlife, we wanted to find out about the ideal afterlife of our listeners. We asked them to please describe that for us. Elena has been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? Well, uh, Craig has, I think, my number one answer. Craig's ideal afterlife is, I am reunited with every pet I've ever had, and I find out that they're all friends with each other now. (laughs) So, you know, your childhood pet from decades ago and maybe your best friend that you just lost a little bit ago, Mm -hmm. turns out they, like, started a poker game together. I've seen a painting of that, actually. (laughs) Right? And, like, even pets that maybe didn't like each other when they lived together under the same roof, now they're all just, like, on a cloud playing harp next to each other, just chilling. That is the number one uh, perk of the afterlife as far as I'm mm-hmm. concerned is I get to see all of my beloved pets again. I know. I always say this when it comes up, but it is a really lousy system that we tend to outlive them. Unless they're a yeah. tortoise, apparently, because I just learned about tortoise estate planning, which we can talk about on another episode. <laughs> it's a real <laughs> thing. Uh, what's another ideal afterlife that one of our listeners would like to visit? Oh, this one's pretty good. Second only to pets is Dennis's idea. In Dennis's afterlife, I get to hang out with Prince and David Bowie. Whoa. (laughs) I feel like one of them is a little more sociable than the other. I've always heard that David Bowie, especially in like the last 25, 30 years of his life, was like incredibly fun Mm -hmm. to hang out with and kind. And and I think Prince may be a little shyer, a little more of an introvert. That's what I've heard. I wonder if in heaven I will have more chill because I would have zero mm. chill if I was meeting, like <laughs> on this astral plane, if I were to meet David Bowie and Prince, I would not be able to keep it together, them being two of my all-time very favorite artists. But maybe in heaven, like, you know, we're all a little different and like I can just hang out with them and be not be weird. Not be Chris Farley exactly. in that SNL. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, one more ideal afterlife that one of our listeners wants to visit. Oh, this one is perfect. It's from Diana. In Diana's ideal afterlife, I get to hang out with the younger versions of my grandparents. Whoa. I would love Charlie Passarello, uh, World War II vet, and just all-around handsome man. Was He looked like a matinee idol in the 40s, and he was apparently a real trickster. And I would have loved to, I mean, he's still around. He's almost 99 years old, but I would love to like party with my grandfather in the 40s and 50s, like straight up beach blanket bingo party with him. It'd be so fun. I have this one picture of my granddad, Jack Kelly of Philadelphia, PA, who I was Mm. like maybe two when he passed away, but it's a picture of him on the beach and he's got these Hawaiian shorts on. And I remember when I was younger, I thought he seemed, you know, like he was older or middle-aged in the photo. He's probably like 30. He's probably like 17 (laughs) years younger than I am now. But like, first thing is, every year I look more and more like this guy. Like my face and head is kind of morphing into this, this kind of the look that he had. But also, I would love to have been down the seashore with Jack Kelly in that picture when he's got his Hawaiian shorts on. He's got my grandma Flora with him, and they're just like having a time. Thank you so much to uh, to everybody who responded to our audience question this week. We've got another question for next week's show coming up. All right. Our next guest's writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Guardian, and a bunch of other places. Her latest book, Wolfish, The Stories We Tell About Fear, Ferocity, and Freedom, was called Exhilarating in the Washington Post. Vulture Magazine calls it a powerful exploration of predators and their prey delivered with an unflinching and vulnerable honesty. Here is Erica Berry, recorded in front of a live audience at the Holt Center for the Performing Arts in Eugene, Oregon. Take a listen. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, Let's start with OR-106. Um, who was OR-106 and why were you so fascinated with them? OR-106 was found on the side of the road. And I first sort of heard about OR-106 when I was reading about the poaching of this wolf um, whose body was found after New Year's and shot by the side of the road. And so I opened the book in this sort of crime scene way where I'm thinking about this body of a wolf that... um, was it was unsolved, and there's most of the poachings of wolves in Oregon are are unsolved, and so part of this book is thinking about wolves not as the predator that we sort of inherit stories around them, but as a sort of prey to and the slipperiness between those two roles. Now, why do you think that that story of this this wolf that people thought maybe had been hit by a car or something, but then it mm-hmm. turned out it had been poached? Why did that capture you? in your imagination? Was there something going on in your life? Like, why, why do you think it became such a big deal in your mind? I became interested in real wolves and symbolic wolves around the same time. Yeah. And it was when I was in my early 20s and wolves were repopulating Oregon, my home state. And I was interested in their position, I guess, in the ecosystem had never occurred to me. Um, I thought of them as like, this would be this nice thing to see on a hill. I like the idea of seeing a wolf. I had this sort of hiker mentality. My grandfather has a sheep farm, so I was aware of wolves as like, a presence in that way too. But um, my mom got really sick when I was in college and she had a really high fever that nobody could solve and she was hospitalized and it was all very dire. And at some point they 
some, a doctor in there said, well, it's a tick-related illness, and if we only had more wolves, the deer and the rodents would be a little more in check. And it was a throwaway comment made in the emergency room. But across the country where I was worrying about her and also studying wolves academically from my environmental studies thesis, it was like something clicked that there was this relationship between my mother's body and my body and the wolf and the animal. And I just like suddenly saw myself as a part of this system. And so I, at the same time, was interested in the sort of symbolism of fear and this irrational fear game because I was grappling with fear in my own life and a couple of experiences that happened that made me very aware of, say, Little Red Riding Hood and the sort of scaffolding that I was carrying through the world as a young woman. Um, those stories felt really poignant, too, and I wanted to kind of free the wolf from those stories. I, I guess I hadn't thought until I read this book a lot about, like, what actual threat wolves might pose to people, but you write in the book, it's very, very low, <laughs> like extremely low. You write about a woman in Alaska who... Uh, was killed by a wolf. But do you also write about how rare, like how rare is it for something like that? Oh my gosh, I I have a list of things that are statistically more likely to kill you than a wolf. It's like falling off ladders, vending machines falling on you, death by cow, you know, there's this whole list of things that everyone should be fearing more than wolves. And yet wolves, you know, we've been afraid of them since when? I mean, when did we start as humans becoming afraid of wolves, probably irrationally? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I tried to sort of like linguistically trace that. An early Prussian, Iranian, Slavic words, the word for wolf and outlaw are the same. And at one point I started thinking like, when did humans start projecting onto wolves this danger? Um, It became apparent to me that if I went into this project thinking I'm going to write about the wolf sort of journalistically, scientifically, just look at the wolf as I see it, I felt like everyone was looking at the wolf through these like thick goggles that had many different lenses. Part of the book is recognizing that I have a different wolf in my head that's like a shadow wolf than than you might have, and I'm kind of interested in that. Now, uh, you talk in the book uh, a lot about the 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 issue that a lot of people, particularly in the West, ranchers and farmers have with wolves repopulating areas and they see it as a real threat to their livestock and to their lifestyle. And on the one hand, I think the wolf is a, such a majestic and kind of solitary creature and we think of them and they're written very, I think, warmly in the book. And yet they can do some pretty devastating things to livestock. Does that move your needle at all? Like, I mean, do those people have any sort of point when they say maybe it's not great to have wolves in close proximity to a bunch of, like, you know, cows? I mean, I think this was interesting, too, because my grandfather having sheep, like, I grew up with this awareness of, like, the lamb is in the bathtub because it was attacked by the coyote or it's being sewed back together and so but my grandfather was also a conservationist and an environmentalist and believed that um, there was a place for wolves in the ecosystem statistically wolves kill not a large proportion of livestock compared to cougars say or bears so I, I can really empathize in doing interviews with these livestock producers who feel so much care for what they're taking care of and their their animals that's that's real and at the same time people have been living beside wolves for thousands of years uh this is live wire radio from prx we're talking to erica berry about her new book um wolfish when you started writing this book would you have considered yourself to be a fearful person 
I don't know that I would have when I, so I started this essentially 10 years ago for my undergraduate thesis project. And at that time I was just writing about the wolf as like the four-legged thing. And then I got to graduate school a few years later. I was leaving a brewery right as I got there. I'm like very bright eyed and so excited to be living on my own in a big city for the first time. And I heard footsteps behind me and, um, I sort of thought, you're probably making this up. There's nobody running after you. And I turned right as a man that I didn't know grabbed me. And that experience rewired completely my experience of walking down the street. And I was interesting talking to a biologist who studies these ecologies of fear, it's called, like this idea that we live in these landscapes of fear where there's like topographies of threat that animals are aware of in the ecosystem. And I started thinking about that in my own life. And I was like, I'm not sure that I should be looking to the science in this way and extrapolating it, but I'm my own topography of fear has changed. So I would say that learning about those sort of reactions helped me live beside it in a different way, which in so many ways is like the project of growing older. It's like learning to live beside your fear. Let's talk about OR7 a little bit, the, the big star of this book. Um, who was OR7 and why were people so captivated with him? So OR7 was the seventh wolf collared in Oregon, and he left his pack in northeastern Oregon in 2011. And just started walking, and lots of wolves leave their packs and start walking. That's dispersal, normal behavior. But OR7 was going further and farther, and he was collared, so he was trackable. And he became the first wolf in Western Oregon, and then the first wolf in California. And the hype grew. There was one headline that said he was the most famous wolf in the world. So, <laughs> On the subject of which, can we um, hear a little reading from the book that kind of talks about some of the fame that OR7 enjoyed? Within a week or so of OR7's crossing into the state, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife created a Twitter account for him, sharing rough plot points of his journey while hiding his location. Their bio for Wolf OR7, parentheses, two-year-old wolf from Oregon, left family to find wife and new home, (laughs) was joined by fan accounts too, mostly run anonymously, Bio, native Oregonian, California tourist, grew up in troubled family, hobbies, wandering, undulates. (laughs) Facebook pages classified him as a public figure where fans came together to comment things like, he is an amazing symbol of hope and strength and too cool, what a beaut. By mid-January, the New York Times had published an article about the wolf's almost cult-like status They quoted a senior policy advisor for the CDFW who said random citizens were suddenly calling the office saying we should find him a girlfriend as soon as possible and let them just settle down. (laughs) Others wanted to expunge humans from parts of the Golden State and revert the land to total wolf sanctuary. Quote, people are going to get wolf tattoos, wolf sweaters, wolf keychains, wolf hats, a board member for a California wolf advocacy organization told the Times. The National Enquirer wrote about OR7. There was even a bumper sticker, OR7 for president. (laughs) The swag made me think of a line about fandom from critic Michelle Orange's memoir. Claiming and being identified with a love of this or that is integral to the pleasure, to the experience of loving it. People wanted to be identified by their love of wolf. The book is Wolfish. Erica Berry, everyone. That was Erica Berry. 
right here on Livewire, recorded at the Holt Center in Eugene, Oregon. Her book, Wolfish, The Stories We Tell About Fear, Ferocity, and Freedom, is available now. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello, and you are listening to Livewire. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to hear some music from the truly fantastic international rock band making movies. So don't go anywhere. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Okay, before we get to our musical guest this week, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be hanging out with friend of LiveWire, Dave Hill. He is a comedian, actor, musician, and writer whose fourth book, The Awesome Game, One Man's Incredible, Globe-Crushing, Hockey Odyssey, attempts to answer the ultimate question in sports, why is hockey so incredibly awesome, and why can't Dave make it more popular here in his native uh, United States. Plus, we're going to have music from Livewire favorite No-No Boy, Julian Saperiti. He's going to give us a little history lesson uh, through some extremely catchy music. And as always, we are going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the Livewire listeners? We want you to tell us what, in your opinion, is the most awesome game. For Dave Hill, it's hockey, but what do you think? All right. Okay. If you have a response to that, Go ahead and hit us up online. We are at Live Wire Radio, pretty much anywhere you get your social media. All right, this is Live Wire from PRX. NPR calls our musical guests one of the most unique groups around today. Making movies incorporates traditional Latin American instruments and sounds into their truly one of a kind style, creating American music, as they say, with an asterisk because it represents all of the Americas. They've shared the stage with such artists as Arcade Fire, Los Lobos, Thievery Corporation, Rodrigo y Gabriela. Their fourth album, Sopa, is available now. This is Making Movies recorded live on stage at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Good evening. Hello there. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, well, what song are we going to hear? It's a little song called Porcelina. Okay. Is this off the new record? Yeah, it is off the new record. All right, here we go. This is Making Movies on Livewire. I got to say, this song is dedicated to the many women who have been counselors and mentors in our lives. Women seem a little more tapped into the divine. And, and coincidentally, one of the folks who we feel that way about is, is here tonight. She moved from Chicago to Portland, and she brought us dinner right now. So it's specially dedicated to Shayla, uh, our dear friend. All right. Ella camina al revés por Celina Y me jura que ha visto esa torre de Babel Ella sabe que la vida es mucho más caín que Abel 
escribió este poema ahí en el pedacito de papel que dice
pa'l pueblo, hoy es mi día, voy a alegrar todo el alma mía. Making movies right here on Livewire. Their album, Sopa, is available right now. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the show. A very, very big thanks to our guests, Ken Jennings, Erica Berry, and Making Movies. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Eben Hoffer and Molly Pettit are our technical directors. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Our marketing and production manager is Karen Pan. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. Jackie Ibarra is our production fellow. And Becky Phillips is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. This episode was mixed by Molly Pettit and Trey Hester. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Carrie Timchuk of Beaverton, Oregon. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.